Hi, and welcome to Stefan Levera podcast, a show about Bitcoin. Today, for episode 337, my guest is Salvatore Ingala from Ledger. Now, today, we're talking about the new Ledger Bitcoin app, and this is bringing new features and functionality to the Ledger device. It is going to be operating using PSBT, partially signed Bitcoin transactions. It will have better support for multi-signature and wallet policy. And we also talk about some of the future aspects of support that may be coming in terms of things like more advanced use of scripting, things like Miniscript and others, and of course, the support for Taproot. This show is brought to you by Swan Bitcoin, swan.com. It's the easy way to accumulate Bitcoin while also learning about Bitcoin. Now, have you thought about what your savings would look like if you had been regularly stacking? Well, swan.com, there is a calculator. You can type in, as an example, $50 a week for five years. How much would you have put in and how much would that be worth? That's a really interesting exercise to run for yourself or even if you're trying to show one of your friends, uh, a pre-coiner or new coiner, the importance of setting up that Bitcoin savings plan. Also, if you are a high net worth individual or a company looking to stack, or if you're interested in purchasing Bitcoin inside your IRA, Swan Private can help. You'll get a dedicated Bitcoin expert available for calls to walk you through the setup and purchase process, as well as guide you on other aspects of Bitcoin. So go to swan.com. If you're in the Bitcoin mining industry, check out brains.com. That's brains with two eyes. They're in the Bitcoin mining industry. They offer various projects that you can take a look at. So Brains OS Plus, this is firmware for ASICs. It's aftermarket custom firmware that you can install. It allows you to stack more sats because the main feature is auto tuning. So you optimize your miner performance so you get more hash rate for your electricity bill. So if you want to check it out, go to brains.com and see if your mining equipment is supported. If you go to insights.brains.com, you'll see all sorts of calculators and visualization of graphs around mining. I particularly like the profitability dashboard which is really interesting to see what machines are profitable at what electricity price rate and so it's just some really interesting statistics and i'm sure you'll learn something from that also so that website is brains.com brains with two eyes lend at hodl hodl is a peer-to-peer bitcoin-backed lending platform where you can lend or borrow stable coins globally and anonymously sign up in just 30 seconds and borrow stable coins without verification You deal directly with other people and you control your collateral throughout the whole deal with interest paid at the end. Or earn extra on your stablecoins by lending them at the highest returns. You issue over-collateralized loans with the full interest guaranteed. Lend at HODL HODL. Lend and borrow stablecoins on your terms at your desired interest rates. There are no hidden fees. The terms and conditions are transparent and users control the keys in the deal through escrow. Go and check it out. Lend.hodlhodl.com. And now onto the show with Salvatore. Salvatore, welcome to the show. Thank you, Stefan. I learned a lot from your past shows, so I hope I can bring a contribution as well. Fantastic. Well, Salvatore, for people who don't know you, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you're doing and where you're working? Uh, yeah. Um, so I have a background from academia. I did a PhD in, in, in algorithms before switching my attention to, to cryptocurrencies. And yeah, I joined Ledger uh, about one year ago now. Uh, and I've been lucky to work almost exclu- exclusively on the uh, Bitcoin-related work. And so, so yeah, I've been uh, um, th- the first project that I started working on when uh, when I joined Ledger because it was clear that I wanted to work on Bitcoin uh, was to implement uh, PSBT support in the in the app. At the time, I didn't even know what PSBT was. 
but it was Bitcoin, so I was like, okay, perfect, I'll take it. <laughs> and so I started learning about PSBT, what it is, how it relates to multi-signature and so on. And so uh, after studying a bit the, the, the matter of the issue, like the scope of the project uh, got a bit bigger because uh, I figured that to have a proper integration uh, with, with the app, rather than just incrementally adding a new feature, it would have been better to start from scratch and try to get uh, a new app and and that's how we started this project that was uh quite quite long uh like the the scope for developing this was a bit expanding when you estimate the time always uh you know you tend to over overestimate how quickly you can do things but then you discover a lot more things that you didn't consider before but yeah that was an interesting project to work on and uh we launched it in in September together with the Taproot support and now we are still working on it for the uh, future features that are like scripts and multi-signature and so on. When, at the time you joined, what were the main aims in, of the new app? Was it, Or was it sort of, it just kind of evolved and then became to this point where, okay, actually it makes sense to now to relaunch the app or have a new version? Yeah, I mean, the, the initial scope was just to uh, improve on the existing app that we had and so to add a feature that... Uh, basically is becoming necessary like any hardware wallet or any software wallet has to support PSBT, right? But uh, because the old, the, the previous app was written a long time ago, like it was designed when a lot of the technologies that we have today in Bitcoin didn't even exist. So it was, I think the initial version of the app uh, was maybe developed in 2013, I think. So that was even before SegWit. And so uh, there were, there were, there was no PSBT at the time. There was no descriptors. Uh, and so, uh, decisions that were made back then now uh, are not optimal anymore and so it, it just became not possible to incrementally improve on the previous app and, and so it was just uh, even less work to actually come with come up with a new app a new design so that we, we had the chance of completely trying to remove the tech depth and uh, get some completely clean new architecture that is more simple and more structured and more organic yeah, and so we'll, we'll try to keep it accessible for listeners as well. So if you're new and you're trying to learn about Bitcoin, the way Ledger typically works is you might have received it and you might install the software. So the default software is Ledger Live, so you can use it with other um, software or with other providers. And so what we're talking about here is when you install and when you set that wallet up, you actually have to download and install a Bitcoin app, essentially. And so what we're talking about here is version two of that app, correct? Yeah. So yeah, in particular in Ledger, uh, there is a distinction between like the firmware and the operating system and the apps that are that you can install. While other uh, hardware wallets might be more monolithic, and so you install everything all together. I see. And right. so yeah, my work is specifically on the uh, Bitcoin app in Ledger. And so now, just to explain a little bit further for listeners who might not be familiar, can you explain what is a PSBT? Yeah. Uh, so a PSBT uh, stands for partially signed Bitcoin transaction, and uh, it's been a, a format basically to represent in, in a standard way all the information that is necessary when you want to sign a, a transaction. So that's a format that has been um, developed over the last few years by Andrew Cho, Bitcoin Core developer. And the problem it solves is basically that uh, when you have uh, more complex transactions than typical ones, uh, you might have different parties involved, right? Uh, so for a simple transaction, you're the only person signing. So you just send the request to your hardware wallet, the hardware wallet signs it, that's it. You can produce the final transaction. But for more complex uh, situations, you might have 
different parties that are in the same wallet. For example, typical example is the multi-signature wallet where you have, for example, three signers and maybe you have two signers that have to sign to approve the transaction, right? And so there is the problem of how you coordinate different parties that perhaps might even use different software. So, so uh, before PSBT, there were some working multi-signature solution like at Electrum, but each of them would have, would use their own way of exchanging this information, their own format and so on. And so it was difficult to do things uh, when you don't use the same software in all the machines or in all the, or maybe you use different hardware wallets and so on. And so, um, in, in, with PSBT, uh, basically what it does is that it uh, embeds some generic information about the, the transaction, plus for each of the inputs and for each of the outputs of the transaction, it also has all the information that is required for the hardware wallet to, to sign the transaction. So to, to detect, for example, one of the things that before Taproot was necessary to do when you sign a transaction is to make sure that the output you are spending, so the prevout, is the the one that uh, is being declared uh, because let's not forget that in uh, in the in the security model for the hardware wallet we are assuming that your computer could be completely compromised so there could be a hacker completely controlling what's happening in your computer and so you might think that you are sending some request for a transaction but someone might change the data before it reaches your hardware wallet right and so we want uh, even in this situation, we want it not to be possible for you to sign something you don't want to sign. Um, so the hardware wallet has to verify a number of things to make sure that it's signing the correct thing. Uh, and so even this information that uh, is accessory information that the hardware wallet needs is also embedded in the PSBT. And there are a lot of uh, other fields that could be relevant for different types of scripts, different types of transactions and so on. And uh, by standardizing this, uh, it becomes a lot easier to um, to integrate um, with different softwares and also to make uh, to abstract the complexity from the software wallet writer. Like you can uh, have some libraries that work with PSBTs, and then you don't care in detail how the inner working all these things work. You just uh, use these libraries, and you you can write uh, software wallets for multi-signature much more easily. And so again, I'll just give a quick summary for listeners who might be thinking, whoa, whoa, that's a lot of technical stuff. So the short version, um, PSBT, partially signed Bitcoin transactions, are like a special format that is used to make it more interoperable between different pieces of software and hardware. And so previously, each different piece of hardware wallets or each different software might have had their own way of doing things, whereas PSBT, we can think of it like a standardized way to send that information back and forth. And so what's happening in the background for listeners out there, when your Bitcoin wallet is spending money, it has to look at, okay, what are the available inputs I have in my wallet? And then I'm going to select, okay, this one, this one, and this one to be the inputs to my transaction. And then I'm going to put that into this PSBT and I can send that out to the various hardware wallets for them to be able to sign that transaction. So people might have incorrectly, for example, they might have thought, oh, the PSBT is only like, say, if you're using a micro, S, micro SD card, but actually it's more like at a very, you know, more data level, it's happening at this way of the wallets are sharing that information so that they know the right way to sign that transaction and get it ready so that then once it's finalized and ready for broadcasting, then it goes out to the network. And so that's just a little bit of information there. Um, and of course, I've got an episode with Andrew Chow, episode 99, if I recall correctly. So stefanlevera.com slash 337. You'll find all the show notes for this one. Um, and so, Salvatore, can you tell us a little bit about PSBT and how that's being implemented now into the Ledger 
the hardware wallet and also Ledger software, Ledger Live. Um, yeah, so uh, in the new design of the app, uh, so while, while I was thinking like how do we go into uh, using the PSB format in the new signing flow for the, for the new app. So there are a number of issues that uh, had to be solved. Uh, one of them is that the PSBT format is typically meant for to represent things that can be pretty large, like uh, there it's not difficult to construct PSBTs that are several hundreds of kilobytes. And so one issue is that you cannot think of sending the whole thing to the device, right? It's uh, a Ledger Nano, Nano S has something like four or 4.5 kilobytes of RAM available to the app. And, uh, and so it has to work with little pieces of the, the information at the time, right? And um, in terms of architecture, w when I thought of what it means to sign a PSBT, uh, what I uh, figured is that we need to tell the hardware wallet how do we want to sign this PSBT. Because when you sign a transaction, uh, in the typical case, you know it's one of the, the standard types of transactions that are already known to everybody. But then when you have um, uh, complex scripts, then you need to tell the hardware wallets how is this script constructed, right? Uh, so if, if you have a multi-signature wallet, the hardware wallet needs to be aware uh, of who are the other cosigners or what kind of uh, script specifically you're, you're using. And the reason that's important is that all this information about what kind of policy you're using to sign the transaction needs to be also validated from the user. Otherwise, there are possible attacks there. Uh, because, for example, uh, if someone replaces one of the cosigners, then they might put a different cosigner than the one you're expecting. And now you don't know, but you're sending your transaction to uh, a different wallet than the one you're expecting. And maybe one of the signers is the attacker. And now the attacker can ransom you, can, take, can tell you like, oh, unless you give me half of the Bitcoin, that Bitcoin is lost. You can never retrieve it, right? And so together with supporting PSBT natively on the app, uh, what uh, we did was to develop this uh, framework to register a policy on the device, uh, where a policy is basically the description of the kind of script you're using. So in the case of multi-signature, it's slightly more than just the list of the cosigners. Uh, but we designed this already with more complex future uh, scripts in mind. Um, so the goal will be to support uh, things like Miniscript that can add uh, more complex policies and maybe we'll go into this a little bit more later. Excellent. So one other question I had just around the amount of RAM on the device. Now, of course, in Bitcoin, part of the way things are being built, especially at the protocol level, is to sort of allow backwards compatibility as much as possible. But I wonder, at what point does it actually make sense to say, well, okay, we need to upgrade and move to newer hardware worlds that actually do have more RAM? So could you just outline a little bit of your thinking there? Like, at what point would you have to sort of say, okay, look, we are going to have to stop support for some of the newer features because, let's say, the older hardware wallet devices just simply cannot support it, and you know it's it's you're you're going to have to upgrade to the new uh, hardware wallets that, let's say, have a bigger CPU or more RAM or etc. Yeah. That's a great question because it kind of resonates with a lot of the thinking I was doing on this um, new protocol and new app uh, I was working on um, in the early stages, and um, so the thing is. What is a hardware wallet? A hardware wallet, uh, even the term wallet is, is not exactly a very good description right. because it's not really a wallet. Uh, a hardware wallet is just a device that is able to, to store keys. And, and in Bitcoin, actually, you just need to store one key, which is the, the master key. And thanks to something called BIP32, you can derive all the other keys that you might ever need, right? Um, 
So in terms of what the hardware wallet needs to really store to, to work with Bitcoin, it's very little. And the thing is, you uh, like having a very little RAM or, or very uh, slow CPUs make your programming uh, life a lot harder. Um, and so uh, while some things can be possible even on uh, simpler machines, the reason you want to extend is just to be able to develop some more complex features, right? But the, the thing that I was trying to work on with PSBT was that, like, apart from the keys, that is the, this, the private keys that you need to sign the transactions, everything else doesn't necessarily need to fit in, in the RAM of the device at the same time. And so the solution, uh, we came up with was to, uh, to use something called Merkle trees. It's difficult to explain Merkle trees without getting a little bit technical, so this might scare some people. But uh, the the general idea is that it uh, it allows us to uh, to work with um, some data that instead of it being kept on the device is kept outside of the device. But the client library that is talking to to the device is able to prove the correctness of the data is is working on. So this is how we use Merkle trees. And so we designed a whole protocol around Merkle trees to be able to work with these large data structures. Uh, for, for example, like uh, in particular, the, the PSBTs are represented with a series of Merkle trees combining other Merkle trees and so on. Uh, and this allows us to uh, make some complex protocols where we ask the client library to provide the information that we need on demand. Yet, thanks to the properties of, of Merkle trees, the client is not able to, uh, to cheat. So even if the client is, uh, is malicious and is hacked and is compromised, it cannot lie on the content of these Merkle trees. It cannot lie on the content of the PSBT that was provided when the process was started, basically, right? So just one question at this point. When you say client, are you referring here to, let's say, the desktop wallet app that somebody is using to coordinate with the let's say the ledger in this case so i mean hypothetically if someone had a malicious ledger live software or if they were to use a malicious version of electrum or sparrow or specter or you know one of these wallet uh, software wallet applications that we use to coordinate with our hardware wallet or maybe signing device or whatever we want to call that is that what you're referring to with client yeah exactly everything that sits on your desktop computer is what i call the client and like basically even if you, your ledger live is not malicious you might have some malware you might have some virus installed on your computer that tampers with ledger live and it makes it do things that it shouldn't do right so uh, we uh, from the hard point of view of me developing the hardware world applications i have to not trust anything that the client side does so i i i'm assuming i'm talking to a compromised ledger live uh, because that's the only way to to make sure that we respect this security model where even a compromised client cannot uh, cannot do bad things. So let me just offer a quick explanation for newer listeners. So part of the security advice and tips uh, over the years has generally been that it's easier to compromise, let's say, the computer, the online connected PC or laptop, than it is to compromise the hardware device. And so the argument has been, if the screen on your computer is saying send 0.01 BTC to this address, don't just trust that actually look at what your physical hardware wallet device is saying and use that. So in practice, it would say, you know, do you want to send 0.01 Bitcoin to, you know, BC1, blah, 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 whatever address. And so I guess bringing that now into Ledger's new Bitcoin 2.0 app, what would that actually look like? What is the customer, you know, when they're physically holding the device, what does it look like for them to verify now? 
so for traditional transactions like the normal single signal transaction nothing will change meaning like the, the user interface will stay the same way that uh, users are, are used to uh, so when you send you are always going to verify everything about the transaction so the amount the the fees that you're spending and who you're sending to so the addresses of the um, of the people that you are supposed to send so that you can check if what you see on the device screen is the same that you see on the screen of the computer right and the same thing you want to do also when you verify transactions when you want to receive uh, uh, some some bitcoins because you want to send your address to someone but again if there is some malware on your computer you might copy something from ledger live you paste it somewhere else and what you paste could be different because the malware already changed or even the malware could uh, show you something different inside Ledger Live if it's uh, smart enough, right? Um, and so even when you want to send to someone else an address that you produce from Ledger Live, by verifying the receive address on the uh, device, you are able to do the... Uh, you, you are much safer because you verify that it matches, right? And what uh, was missing in the previous app was to be able to do this kind of verification both for receive addresses, um, but also to have a proper signing flow for a more complex script like multi-signature that was able to correctly verify, uh, identify what is the change address and all these things. So that uh, b now the new app basically can do the same things that... It, uh, people are used to for sim simple transactions for more complex scripts. So the user interface, when you send a multi-signature multi transaction from the, the hardware wallet is very similar to the, uh, to the usual one. We can go a little bit more about how it looks like on the uh, policy registration and so on, but it's uh, really the goal was to give the same UX that people are used to with the only difference that the hardware wallet also tells you from which multi-signature wallet you are, you are spending basically. Okay, well, this is probably a natural point to go into that. So let me just offer a quick basic explanation for people who are a bit newer. So typically with multi-signature setup creation, so let's say you use Spectre Desktop or Sparrow or something, as part of that multi-signature setup, one of the cool features we're seeing with some hardware wallets is that they are able to I guess there's different terminology used, but you could say register the quorum or sort of understand what is the public key of the other devices in the quorum. So let's say I have device A it and it's a two of three and you've got device A, B and C. Device A would actually have the public keys of device B and C as part of that. And you, it might have been fed some of that information to help, as you're saying, verify and understand, ah, uh, yes, I actually do control the change address. So when that wallet constructs the transaction, it's sending out to the address you want to pay to, but the change address is coming back to one that you control, or at least that multi-signature quorum controls. So do you agree with that, or how would you, you know, do you have anything to add to that point? Yeah, we can, um, one thing we can add is that um, one thing that, uh, another technology that is now central to the, to the new app that uh, we didn't mention so far is the output script descriptors which is, again, mostly developed by Andrew Chow, I think. And what descriptors do is to, to be able to tell, uh, to describe all the receiving, receiving addresses or the change addresses or all the possible addresses of, a, let's say, wallet or an account in a simple way that can be easily transferred to different applications and so on. And the reason that's useful is that once we start using multi-signature or more com complex scripts, we need to be able to describe how this things look like to um, to describe really to the to the hardware wallet or to the software that you're using to to sign transactions right 
And uh, by knowing these descriptions that look like a little programming language, basically, the wallets are, are able to identify, to generate all the addresses that are relevant for an account. So both the receive addresses or the change addresses, but also they are able to, uh, from the point of view of the hardware wallet, is able to really verify that the transaction is going where it's supposed to go. So in particular, when you spend uh, when you spend, for example, one Bitcoin, but uh, 0.9 Bitcoin is going back to your own wallet because it's the change address, the hardware wallet needs to, to be able to detect that uh, which output is the change address. And uh, descriptors allow us to do that. And uh, the wallet policy language that uh, we use in, in the new app is basically designed on top of descriptors, meaning, meaning it's, it's a slightly more modified language because there were some uh, needs that we have specifically for the hardware wallets that were not taken into account when, when this descriptor were probably designed. And, and these needs is that, uh, one is that it's the, this descriptor language is a bit too verbose for the user, like it's too long. Like when you describe a multi-signature wallet, for example, with Spectre, you can export the descriptor for your backup, for example, but it's a very long string because it contains all the XPUB of the, the, the public keys of the, of the cosigners. And, and so it's a very long string. And uh, for example, the receive addresses and the change addresses are almost the same, derived from the same XPUB with just a very little modification. And so it means that the same uh, public key is basically present twice in the descriptor. So, by modifying the language a little bit, we were trying to uh, do something where first we separate the, the keys from just the general template of the, of the script. So we say, okay, this is just a multi-signature two out of three. So you can visually see on the screen some simple description of what you are registering on the device when you register a policy. Uh, and then you have the list of the cosigners that you check one by one. So this is how the UX flow will look like when you register a policy. And so by uh, from the policy, the hardware wallet can easily derive the actual descriptors and then from the descriptor, it can derive all the addresses and everything and it can uh, do all the checks that it needs to do. And, um, and so the, the idea of the new flow is that by using this language, you can do once when you start using a new multi-signature wallet, you can do this registration uh, of the policy that teaches the hardware wallet how to recognize addresses and, and outputs that are relevant to that specific multi-signature wallet. And, and from that moment on, uh, the hardware wallet knows how to uh, recognize them. And so it can, gives you, can give you the usual experience when you sign transactions or you verify uh, receive addresses. Back to the show in a moment. Are you looking to get started with Bitcoin mining? Compass Mining can help. They have ASIC machines, which you can source on the website. Some of those are secondhand and will come online sooner and others are new and there might be a wait time for that new machine to come online and so you can select a mining machine you can have a facility selected also or you can have that mining machine shipped to your home and do home mining if you're in the us now you also select a pool to mine to and now you're mining so they've got all sorts of content that can help also they have a newsletter podcasts and blog posts that will help you in terms of learning about Bitcoin mining. So that website is compassmining.io. Are you looking for a Bitcoin hardware wallet? I like the cold card. It comes from coinkite.com. It looks like a little calculator and you can use it in all sorts of configurations. You can have it as a single signature wallet. You can choose to not use a passphrase or add a passphrase. 
You can have a Juris pin, you can use a BrickMe pin, you can use it as part of a multi-signature setup, or you can use it with Seed XOR. There's just so many different features and functions you can use as part of your cold card. Also, there is an address explorer, which as we speak about, it's important to verify that you control the address that you are receiving to. So this is a great way to really know that you control that address. So if you want to order yours, go to coinkite.com and use the code Levera to get a discount on your cold card. And finally, with Bitcoin, there is an urgency to upgrade our Bitcoin security. Don't just leave it with a custodian. And even with single signature wallets, there are pitfalls there. With Unchained, you can create a multi-signature setup and do what's called collaborative custody. So you can sign up and get a concierge onboarding or have a free consultation. Over at Unchained, they can help you remove those single points of failure. And so that way you can be more confident and sleep more soundly that your coins haven't been lost. So go to unchained.com. You can select the concierge onboarding program and use the code Levera for a discount on that. And now back to the show. Okay, so the output descriptor part. Also, I've actually, I've got an episode just for listeners. I'll put that in the show notes as well. So stefanlevera.com slash 337. You'll see that episode with Andrew Chow. But essentially, it's like an easy way to quickly represent what is that multi-signature setup or more advanced setup? So I guess in this case, we're talking mostly from a multi-signature point of view. That's kind of the key thing. So as you were saying there, this is part of that registering the multi-signature setup at the start. It's a one-time thing. So is this something that would then come into Ledger Live itself? Or is this something more like it's a kind of operating more at the software kind of underlying level? I don't know that right now. I don't think it's in the plan for the short term. Uh because it will not really give any specific advantage to Ledger Live unless Ledger Live wants to integrate at some point multi-signature. Okay, so so essentially what we're talking about is just more like support or additional or better support for multi-signature at the device, let's say the Ledger yeah. Nano S and Ledger Nano X level, not necessarily putting multi-signature creation and quorum management inside Ledger Live, which is the desktop or laptop software, correct? Yeah, I hope it will eventually also land there because I think the, the end goal of uh, PSBT and, and descriptors and so on is that eventually all wallets will be interoperable and will support all the same kinds of advanced scripting conditions without without really having to care about the details. And I think the potential is there, but it's a long way to go before we, we are to that point. <laughs> and so... One other comment that I've seen uh, from the blog post as well as some of the Twitter commentary is that the hardware wallet is still going to be stateless. So first of all, what does stateless mean? And then explain a little bit in the context of this, let's say you have a multi-signature. How does that work if the mo- if the hardware wallet is still stateless? Yeah, exactly. So the meaning of stateless in the context of hardware wallets means that Apart from the seed, like the 24 words that you store on the device, you store nothing else on the uh, on the device that you need to persist in the long term, that you need to re- remember for the future. And uh, this is a design decision that ca- has some advantages and some disadvantages. One big advantage is that the only thing you need to back up, the only really crucial thing that you need to back up is your seed, right? Uh, and as long as you have your seed, you can still reconstruct all the basic addresses and, and everything that you need for your to reconstruct all the keys that you might ever need. Um, that's not entirely possible when you work with multi-signature um, wallets, because it's important to also have a backup of the uh, of the multi-signature wallet. So unlike the seed, which is 
so important to keep private and so you never wanted to leave the hardware wallet, the, the description of the multi-signature is not so private, meaning losing it has some privacy implication, but that's it. Nobody can still uh, uh, spend your funds if they discover your backup of a multi-signature wallet, right? And so several hardware wallets recently started to have some kind of uh, process to register to register these policies on the device, to register a multi-signature on the device so that you can use it. But that's not easy to do at Ledger because of this decision to keep the device stateless. And so we, what we did was to come up with a solution to, uh, to make it possible for the device to kind of remember that something was registered, even if it's not really stored inside the device. And the solution we came up with is to use uh, something called HMAC that for it's probably easier to think of it like a signature. So when you register a, a, wall, a policy on the device, there is the whole description of the policy. So this policy is called, let's say, cold storage. And uh, this is the, uh, the descriptor of this, this policy. So this is, uh, it's a multi-signature two out of three. And the, the keys of this wallet is uh, me, Stefan and, and Jack Dorsey. And, and, and that's it. So that's everything that is in the, in the description of the, of the wallet. And this is registered on the device. And what the device does is uh, first validates with the user. So the user has to approve. So you verify on the screen of the device that you are registering this policy. All the information that we just mentioned is shown on the screen and you have to approve it. And once the user approves everything, the device returns basically a signature, a statement that says, okay, I approved this, this policy. So in any future interaction with this policy, so for example, when you want to sign a transaction, uh, the client library, so the client software could be, let's say, Spectre Desktop, for example, uh, will have to send the description of the policy to the hardware wallet and the signature that proves that it was previously registered. So the, the hardware wallet can verify that. And so without ever needing to store everything, you get the same result as if you actually stored it inside. So just to be clear then, in this case, is the device still storing then that string to then check it against that? So is it now essentially storing the seed and this string so that it knows, okay, yes, this is a valid... No, it's not storing anything because the, the private key that is used to, to sign the statement is also derived from your seed. It's one of the, uh, the what we use is something called Sleep21, which is something okay. similar to BIP32, but for, for symmetric encryption. But I see. Details there get technical, but basically you can derive the same key uh, from your seed. And so even if you erase your hardware wallet and you, you set up again uh, the hardware wallet with the same seed, with the same 24 words, then that's, that signature will still be valid. And so uh, basically, once, once you register a policy on the device, you cannot unregister it. It's not revocable. Of course, you could delete the signature. And if nobody has the signature, it's equivalent to, to unregistering it. But there is no actual way of proving that that was deleted. So the only way to really revoke uh, a multi-signature will be to spend it and move the funds to a different wallet. So it, just as an example, does that mean then you, let's say you would use Spectre Desktop in that example, you then could not take that setup over and use it on, say, Sparrow Wallet or some other Electrum or something else because you had already agreed it to that initial Spectre Desktop setup or where am I missing it there? So one thing that could be done is to try to standardize this process. And so once, so the, the signature that the wallet returns is just a 32 bytes hash, uh, 32 byte string. So once you store those 32 bytes, 
you can move it elsewhere in principle and as long as we agree on the format that could be done but that's something that would need to be maybe standardized that's a later conversation yeah. right but basically if you lose that the only thing you need to do is to re-register the wallet in a different software and, and then you can start using it like that's the only thing that you need to do the registration is to have the backup of the wallet so all the information that any multi-signature wallet will have this backup so so yeah so it's not like a showstopper if you lose that 32 byte string you could recreate it so long as you had your overall wallet backup exactly. which if we're playing in a multi-signature context or world here then you presume the software or the company or the, ideally the tech savvy user knows to keep that backup yeah. which is the multi-signature backup which could be held on a usb stick it could be a, a printed out paper file it could be all, all kinds of different ways that could be backed up but the point is that should should have been backed up um, to show okay what are all the public keys of all the wallets associated with this multi-signature wallet not just you know the typical 24 words seeds aspects of it yeah for multi-signature wallets uh keeping that backup or even for future more complex scripts having the backup of exactly what is the policy it's crucial like if you lose that you might not be able to retrieve your funds ever like you can try to guess it when it's some simple script you can try to guess oh, what was the script but the complexity there can get high enough like the number of policies once you uh, start thinking about more complex policies like uh, you might have multi-signature that also have additional conditions like uh, time locks like you cannot spend these funds with before one year and at some point the number of comp combinations become so much that if you don't have the backup you can never retrieve your funds so the backup there is really crucial for listeners or just people out there if they are customers of let's say for example like my sponsor unchained capital or if they are using say casa and they have a ledger device as part of their setup there what kind of changes would they see using the Bitcoin 2.0 app, or if any, I've never used Casa. I, I should because, it, like, I, I really w would like to to see one of those. Um, but once the app was out, one of the things that I've been working on was to try to make integrations easier. So together with the app, in the months after, I, I released a little Python library that is able to talk to the application. And currently, I'm trying to like the two things that are more important to me right now to, to get uh, done will be an integration with a proper integration with the hardware wallet integration library which is a library used uh, developed again by Andrew Cho like he's always present in these things um, which is basically the li a Python library that is able to talk in a standardized way to all the different hardware wallets for different vendors right and mm -hmm. um, yeah. the library already supports ledger wallets but it does not yet support the new multi-signal features and there is some work to be done there and and I'm working with I tried to make to make a little proof of concept with uh, Spectre or how it would look like in to, to integrate the the multi-signal support uh, for the new app and yeah the only non-trivial thing is that the registration flow is not something that it's, it's a new concept so there is a little bit more work to be done in the UX because you need to have this in in, in the app but once once it's done, it would really look like any other multi-signature wallet. Like the, the the beauty of these things is that it completely abstracts the complexity behind. So for the end user, what you see is you're signing a transaction. Like you're signing a transaction, you're signing it with this wallet. Like for people who have never used multi-signature wallets, Spectre and Sparrow are the suggestions that I will give because they're really very good and easy to use. And and they make the, the, the user experience quite uh quite seamless like if you think about it like it's uh, once you create the policy you register 
now uh, you want to sign a transaction, you just say, okay, sign uh, with this device. You plug your device, you sign a transaction, that's it. So in terms of the user interface, the goal is really to not change anything for the user almost. No, it makes a lot of sense. I, I think it's probably, I'm just asking the question as well, because I have a lot of listeners who might be on the more tech savvy side and they're kind of more interested exactly how the nuts and bolts are working because they might be trying to play around themselves with Spectre and Sparrow and all, all sorts of things. Also, Taproot support. So can you tell us a little bit about Taproot support in the new app? Yeah, so Taproot support was, uh, yeah, we were quite proud to be ready on day one with at least basic receive and send uh, support. And there is definitely, maybe uh, for, for people, sh- should I also introduce very briefly what Taproot is? Uh, so yeah, sure. I guess you might have had other shows on Taproot that probably give more details so people can check those out. But basically, Bitcoin had recently a new soft fork that introduced a lot of new cool stuff and uh, in particular a new transaction type called Taproot. And one of the things that it does is to make policies that are more complex, in particular, again, multi-signature, but even more complex scripts, both more private and more uh, efficient to use with Bitcoin. Like the one problem that you would have had in the past uh, and you still have until uh, some work for integrations is done is that if you use multi-signatures, your transactions are actually more expensive than than single signatures. So you are disincentivized to use those. While once the proper integration work is done uh, in the ecosystem with Taproot, it will be possible to do basically multi-signature transactions that are invisible to other people and they are more private. So that's extremely exciting. And um, one of the things that Taproot does is also to make very complex scripts a lot more efficient. And the technology that they use is, again, Merkle trees. Basically, instead of having just one script, one complex script that has all the possible conditions, you put all of these conditions in a Merkle tree, which is this structure that in a very short way commits, basically, to all the possible uh, scripts. And so when you want to use one of these spending conditions, uh, you only reveal the one that you're going to use. I guess it could get a bit more technical, so maybe we leave it here, but uh, yeah. Right, yeah. And yeah, in, in, uh, in Ledger, so we, the, we have Taproot support for the BIP87, which is the normal single signature transactions. We don't yet have support for scripts, but that's de- definitely like one thing that we, we will work, work on in the next few months. Uh, one issue is that the goal of the new app is to support arbitrary scripts, for example, with Miniscript, and Miniscript is not yet standardized for Taproot, so we'll be on the lookout for, for the standardization efforts, and definitely like we would like to support that as soon as possible, but that goes on and on with the, with the progress within the ecosystem. Uh, but once that's done, definitely it will make sense for anybody who uses more complex uh, conditions to to move on to, to Taproot instead of SegWit because you can do more stuff and you can do it uh, more cheaply and more privately. So, And uh, one thing I, w- I would like to, to mention about Taproot is there has been a lot of misleading or wrong information about Taproot. Like there are people saying like, oh, Taproot is so exciting, we'll bring DeFi to Bitcoin. No, it doesn't. It wasn't designed for that. And there is, on the contrary, there have been a lot of people saying like, oh, Taproot is overhyped. Doesn't actually change a lot in Bitcoin. And I think Taproot actually changes a lot in Bitcoin, but the effects will be much more visible in the longer term, meaning uh, in the short term, people will not see anything because it will take time to actually do the work of uh, implementing all these things. But one thing that changes with Taproot is that a lot of these complex scripts uh, become usable 
like in in a completely seamless way for the for, for the end user. For example, you could have uh, one thing that I will be uh, particularly excited about exploring with Taproot will be assisted custody, where you could have a wallet where uh, looks like a normal wallet for for all use cases, but if you lose your key, there is some custodian that after two years maybe or after one year can retrieve your funds. And you can build even more complex ways, more complex conditions. You can have services where uh, you can use multi-signatures to, to have more complex policies. You can have non-custodial services that can provide some additional conditions. So uh, the, the beautiful thing of, of Taproot is that it makes these things possible at no cost, at absolutely zero cost for the end user. And uh, unless you lose your key, it really looks like a normal wallet to you. Like, So I'm really excited about these kind of applications and uh, at about more widespread adoption of multi-signature that will probably come together with uh, with PSBT adoption. Right, and so just exploring that idea for a second, it could enable new kinds of storage methods. So as an example, people could have maybe two or three multi-signature or three or five multi-signature, but planning for, say, maybe after two years or after three years, there's some kind of back off or back down instead of, Two of three, it's one of three after five years to help in the case of recovery or yeah, exactly. something. People can build more fancy and advanced methods of doing this using the scripting capabilities that are more easily enabled in a taproot and tap script enabled world. Because historically, if people wanted to do that pre-taproot, they would have had to have a script that contained all of that and basically everyone can read that. Whereas now in the taproot world, as let's say Peter Vella would explain, is he, he calls it policy privacy, right? You can have all of these other spending conditions in your tree and you only have to reveal it when you go to spend it as opposed to revealing it even when you sent the coin, when you started that setup, right? Yep. And uh, on, this, on, a similar, on a similar direction, for example, one thing that could be done is... Um, for inheritance planning, like one thing that people often, often forget is what happens to, to my Bitcoins if I die, right? And uh, if you have, for example, three kids, you could have a policy in your wallet that says like, okay, after three years, two out of three keys of my kids can uh, can access my funds. And that's similar to what we described before, but it's for a different use, use case. And again, could be done completely transparently, could even be done without your kids knowing it. Uh, and, and you tell them in your wills, for example, like, I think all these things are really very not very little explored yet, and there are a lot of opportunities to build businesses and products and things on top of this. Yeah, that's really fascinating to think about. Like as an example, let's say you are the father of three children, and you maybe you put a hardware wallet with that public key that you know of. You know, you set up in different vaults, one for each kid, and then in the will you say, "Hey, I gave you access to a hardware wallet, and the backup is here." And actually two of three of you can spend it or something like yeah. that. And then you could even ha- add another key with your notary that is only active after after five years, for example, so that you can, you know, like you can always add more conditions that downgrade slowly the security or become more custodial, but you only use them in case of emergency. Yeah, that's really fascinating. So there's all kinds of possibilities there. Um, and also you touched on Miniscript earlier. So could you explain just, I guess, the... The high-level beginners, what is Miniscript and what are you thinking of there as a potential with the Ledger Bitcoin app? Yeah, Miniscript is uh, basically a language built which is very similar to Descriptors. It's kind of an extension of Descriptors and it adds a bunch of properties that uh, make 
manipulating scripts a little bit more uh, easy and streamlined. The main thing from for the point of view of the um, of the application is that that we can represent more complex uh, policies in a, in a simple way. So the same way that we described the multi-signature by adding some more functions to the language, some more operators, you could add different conditions that are either additional or in uh, in alternative to the policy that you already have. For example, we already mentioned the time locks, like the simple output descriptor don't support time locks, but the miniscript language supports time locks. So you can have uh, combinations of keys plus some delay that before you can spend the funds, some time has, has to pass. And these uh, time locks are useful both because you might just want to lock your funds for some time, but also because they are used in many protocols to ensure for example, in Latin network, time locks are used to make sure that the rightful owner of the funds can access the funds before someone else will, will be able to do it. So you can design more complex smart contracting systems like layer two systems using this complex uh, scripting condition. So Miniscript uh, basically allows to extend beyond the multi-signature because uh, it allows to, for example, to com com combine several multi-signatures or to combine multi-signatures with time lock and all the possible conditions that you might have uh, uh, in Bitcoin or could be, of course, expanded in the future if new opcodes are added. Yeah, this is really fascinating stuff. Yeah. I'm also curious as well around any thoughts on the likes of Music, Music DN or Music 2. Do you foresee that being necessary or... Do you have any thought of that kind of thing being applied into the Ledger Bitcoin app? That's um, in in the future. That is, yeah. That's very interesting. Yeah, I would say not in the very short term because there are things that are easier and more like. Of course, you, know, you, you catch the things that are higher yield first. No? But it's definitely going to become the standard for multisig in in due time. So it's definitely something we, we, I will be interested in exploring at some point. Um, for sure. Okay. Great. Because Musig really gives that benefit of making multi-signature as cheap as single-signature wallets, which you don't get just with Miniscript. And um, so, yeah. Excellent. Okay. And so, I guess those are the key questions I had around the Ledger Bitcoin 2. Do you have any other comments for us just in terms of what's next for Ledger and Bitcoin technology, Bitcoin security? Anything else to share with the listeners? For what's new for Ledger, I guess maybe you can ask Charles Gilmail next time you have him on the show. <laughs> uh, I'll ask Charles, for, yeah. Like for the, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, you can ask Charles for, for those. Like I, I don't set priorities, but uh, I can tell you like the things that I'm uh, more excited in, in, in Bitcoin personally. Sure. Like Definitely more widespread adoption of Miniscript and policies and everything. Like streamlining these things is what, probably the, the lowest hanging fruit right now in Bitcoin. I'm also excited about the more widespread adoption of layer two solutions, uh, which doesn't stop at Lightning. And like there is uh, recently, there is people have been developing the state chains idea of um, something, and that's that's also very interesting to explore because I don't think the layer two space ends at Lightning. I think there will be a lot more more things. There are uh, protocols being built, like Revolt is being building vaults that are based on uh, like protocols based on pre-signed transactions and so on. And actually, uh, a few weeks ago, about a month ago, I did uh, a tweet trying to fetch comments on like, what would you want hardware wallets to do in the future? And I was totally reassured by, by Adam Beck saying like, oh, more complexity is, uh, is bad. You want to keep, keep things simple and so on, which I think missed a little bit the point of my question, because what I was asking is, what do we want to do 
with harder wallets in Bitcoin because I think people who think you can uh, in the future you'll be able to do everything with a Raspberry Pi for Lightning Network are not bullish enough because like once uh, if the price of Bitcoin goes up not investment advice but if the price of Bitcoin goes up let's say 10x for now opening and closing channel will start to become a little bit too expensive and so there will still be the need for other layers to system other solutions other custodial or semi-custodial systems and so on and the amount of value transacted in the Lightning network will be a lot higher than it is now so you will not want like you cannot feasibly consider doing that with just hot wallets right so you might want to have hardware level security even in the Lightning network so one of the things will be interesting to explore is can we provide some more security to the Lightning network or can we provide some more security to state chains or to protocols that use pre-signed transactions like uh, like the vaults and definitely those are interesting things to explore and I think there will be a lot of work to do in the in the next few years in, in the hardware space as well. Fantastic so yeah today we spoke a little bit about a, a range of things and so some of those things are more further off like the likes of Miniscript and Musig and so on but I think the important I guess today things for today PSBT support, Taproot support uh, and also making multi-signature a bit easier for people even just in today's multi-signature context because the more people who can easily use multi-signature the more robust the more secure people can become and the more robust the overall ecosystem is so i think those are probably at least for me from my perspective those are my highlights in terms of what we're seeing out of the new app um so i guess that's probably a good spot to wrap up there salvatore where can people find you online Right, they can just find me on Twitter. My username is Salvatoshi. So hit me up if you have any comments or questions or if you want a feature that we didn't implement yet. Like, of course, we are, we are listening. And also, I'd like to mention Ledger is hiring. So if people are interested in working at Ledger, there are a lot of open positions. So maybe come, come to work with me on Bitcoin. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much, Salvatore. And uh, speak again soon. Thank you, Stefan. So let me know your thoughts on the new Ledger Bitcoin app and whether you will be using that as part of a multi-signature setup. Go to stefanlevera.com slash 337 to get the show notes and we linked a lot of different episodes there just to provide reference information back for some of the other more in-depth topics that have been covered as part of other episodes. And of course, there will be a transcript too. Thanks for listening and I will see you in the Citadels.